Esther chapter 8. I would like to speak to you just for a few moments today on the topic, How Can I Bear It? How can I bear it? Esther chapter 8, we'll begin reading in verse number 1. As is always the case, if you didn't carry a Bible in, and I always encourage you to do that, but if you didn't, there is one in the seat somewhere there in front of you. You're welcome to take that and follow along, and even take it and keep it if you don't have a Bible. Let us begin reading. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told how he was related to her. So the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, and gave it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed Mordecai over the house of Haman. Now Esther spoke again to the king, fell down at his feet, and implored him with tears to counteract the evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews. And the king held out the golden scepter toward Esther. So Esther arose and stood before the king and said, If it pleases the king, and if I have found favor in his sight, and the thing seems right to the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. For how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Then King Ahasuerus said to Queen Esther and Mordecai the Jew, Indeed, I have given Esther the house of Haman, and they have hanged him on the gallows, because he tried to lay his hand on the Jews. You yourselves write a decree concerning the Jews, as you please, in the king's name, and seal it with the king's signet ring, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. So the king's scribes were called at that time in the third month, which is the month of Sivan, on the 23rd day. And it was written according to all that Mordecai commanded, to the Jews, the satraps, the governors, and the princes of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces in all, to every province in its own script, to every people in their own language, and to the Jews in their own script and language. And he wrote in the name of King Ahasuerus, sealed it with the king's signet ring, and sent letters by couriers on horseback, riding on royal horses, bred from swift steeds. By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives, to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. On one day, in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, on the thirteenth day of the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar. A copy of the document was to be issued as a decree in every province and published for all people so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers who rode on royal horses went out, hastened, and pressed on by the king's command, and the decree was issued in Shushan the citadel. So Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal apparel of blue and white with a great crown of gold and a garment of fine linen and purple, and the city of Shushan rejoiced. And was glad. The Jews had light and gladness, joy and honor. And in every province and city, wherever the king's command and decree came, the Jews had joy and gladness, a feast and a holiday. Then many of the people of the land became Jews, because fear of the Jews fell upon them. Father God, thank you for the the word of God. Thank you for this wonderful book of Esther. I pray you'd speak to us from it once again. Fill me, Lord, with your spirit. Help me, Father, to say only those things I ought to, but to boldly say everything I should. 
speak to our hearts. Help us, Father, to think about the, uh, the convicting truths that are in this passage. And uh, help us, Father, to ask ourselves that question. How can we bear it? And I pray you'd help us in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, a couple weeks ago in the previous chapter, we saw that chapter ended with Haman writhing 75 feet in the air, impaled atop a pole. And after Esther had exposed his evil during her second banquet with him and the king, he had been immediately condemned and immediately executed. Haman, this terrible enemy of the Jews, was dead. Chapter 8 now opens with this wonderful reversal of fortunes. Notice here, Haman's entire fortune and everything he owned was given by the king to Esther. Mordecai, the one who was so hated by Haman, was given Haman's entire position and authority. Quite a reversal. The king took off his signet ring, which had so recently been on Haman's finger, and put it on Mordecai. And Mordecai was now, just as Haman had been, second in command only to the king in all of the land. Esther turned over control of Haman's vast fortune and holdings to Mordecai. So Mordecai not only had the power and the prestige and the position, he now had wealth in control of that immense wealth uh, that Haman had had before. There was a point in the events leading up to Haman's demise when we might have wondered, can things get any worse? You remember that? It really looked bleak. But now, after this wonderful reversal of fortunes, after Haman is no longer a threat, after Mordecai is no longer a punching bag, after Esther and Mordecai are both elevated to the highest positions and the greatest wealth in all of the land, well, we might wonder, can things get any better? I'm reminded of that old gospel song. Anybody ever hear that old gospel song, if it keeps getting better and better, oh Lord, I don't know what I'm going to do? That probably is the way they were feeling right about now. At least you'd think so, wouldn't you? But as our eyes move from this wonderful reversal mentioned in the first couple of verses to the events recorded in verse 3, for some reason we don't see Esther rejoicing. We don't see her amazed at her newfound blessing. We see her at the king's feet in tears. Now why? Well, it seems there was still a problem, which we really kind of need to think about. Haman's decree was still in effect. The evil of Haman the Agagite and the scheme which he had devised against the Jews was still in force. Esther and Mordecai might have been elevated to power and prestige and wealth as a result of his death, but every Jew in the land was still doomed to death. And it was but a few months away when that was going to take place. Esther had succeeded in getting rid of the enemy of the Jews, but she still had work to do if she was going to save the Jews themselves. So let's look at this passage and let's do it the same way we've done every other time. Let's spend a few moments looking at what happened and then let's make some application. What happened and then how can we apply that to our lives? So first of all, what happened? And the first thing I see that happened here is that Esther had a broken heart. She had a broken heart, verses 3 through 6. Once again, we see Esther coming before the king. The text seems to imply that a little time had elapsed between the banquet and her meeting with the king. For in verse number 4, we find him once again holding out the golden scepter to her, uh, which would seem to indicate that this is another unannounced visit. This didn't happen right there in the banquet. A little bit of time had passed, apparently. And so she had again taken this risk upon herself of making an unannounced visit to Ahasuerus, and he had again allowed that audience. 
He no doubt noticed that things were different this time around. When she appeared before him in chapter 5, she had put on her royal robes and she had stood regally before him. She had come before him looking in every respect his queen. And when he had asked her what she wanted and promised everything up to half the kingdom, she had been coy, inviting him to dine with her twice before she would actually tell what the issue was. Haman. This time, though, she fell at his feet, imploring, the Bible says, begging, weeping, according to verse number three. And it's interesting to note she not only put herself at risk by another unannounced visit to the king as she had done earlier, but now she compounded the risk by weeping and being sad in the presence of the king. Remember when we studied Nehemiah, we learned about this. Nehemiah knew a little something about this danger. Nehemiah chapter 2, the king said to me, why is your face sad since you are not sick? This is nothing but sorrow of heart. So I became dreadfully afraid and said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city and the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire. He was fearing, and he feared greatly, because it was a death sentence to come into the presence of the king. Sad. Esther knew about this too. When Mordecai had originally heard of Haman's decree and had sat down in mourning and in sackcloth outside of the, outside of the palace, she had had to go out to him because he could not come into the palace in that state. Esther chapter 4, he went as far as the front of the king's gate. For no one might enter the king's gate clothed with sackcloth. Morning. And the king. Those two things didn't work. You may have seen a, a, a movie that Tom Hanks was in some years ago. It was called A League of Their Own. Anybody remember that movie? A League of Their Own. It was a, it was a movie about an all-female professional baseball team. It was set during World War II when most professional baseball players, I guess, were off to war. And so they, somebody came up with that idea. All female baseball players. And there's one scene in the movie where one of his female baseball players, Tom Hanks was the coach, one of his female baseball players starts to cry. She gets upset by something. And Tom Hanks, I believe, delivered one of the most iconic lines in the history of any movie when he said, there's no crying in baseball. There's no crying in baseball. And there's no crying in front of a Hashuaris either. And Esther knew this. There she is, kneeling and weeping before him. Because she knew the decree was still in effect. And she plainly asked him here to reverse it. Let it be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman, the son of Hamadatha the Agagite, which he wrote to annihilate the Jews who are in all the king's provinces. Her heart was broken for her people. She said, how can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? Or how can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Verse 6. So the first thing that happened is Esther had a broken heart. The second thing that happened is the king promised deliverance, verses 7 through 14. And as I've thought this through, I, I wrote this outline earlier, and then I was thinking about it as I, actually, as I was driving here this morning. I thought, I'm not sure that word promised is right right there. I think it might be provided, might be a better word. Either one, I guess, works. The king provided deliverance. Now, remember that in that culture, a law or a decree signed by the king could never be revoked. There's a good description of this fact in Daniel chapter 6, verse number 8. It says, Now, O king, establish the decree and sign the writing so that it cannot be changed according to the law of the Medes and Persians, which does not alter. And therefore, King Darius signed the written decree. Haman's decree was the law of the land. 
It had already been signed. It was a done deal. It was irrevocable. Even Ahasuerus could not change that. The only way to undo an already signed decree was to write another decree that somehow mitigated it, and that's what the king suggested here. One man said, though Haman's decree could not be revoked, a second one could supersede it. So the king said, in effect, to Esther, you, you and Mordecai, you yourselves, write a decree concerning the Jews as you please in the king's name, seal it with the king's signet ring, for whatever is written in the king's name and sealed with the king's signet ring, no one can revoke. In effect, he told Esther, I can't simply erase a law that's on the books, my queen, but I can write another one, or you can write another one that counteracts the first. So you and Mordecai write that decree. And I'll sign it. And, of course, that's exactly what happened next. Mordecai issued a decree. He sealed it with the king's signet ring, according to verse number 10. The decree was then distributed to every corner of the kingdom, just as Haman's original decree had been. Interestingly, the new decree did nothing to change the old one. That one was still in force. But the new decree authorized the Jews to fight back. Should anybody choose to attack one of the Jews on this day, Uh, that Jew would have the full weight of the newer decree behind him or her to destroy that attacker, to defend themselves against that attacker. The king's favor would now be with the Jew who defended himself or herself rather than with his attacker. According to verse number 11, their, their authority was limited. They were given the authority to defend themselves, to annihilate those who attacked them, and also to plunder their possessions. They did not take advantage of that last part, by the way. Yes, three times in this passage, verse 10, verse 15, verse 16, it said they did not touch the plunder. They were authorized to. But they were also authorized to defend themselves, but they were not authorized to be aggressors. They could not attack. They could only defend. They could not indiscriminately uh, go after their enemies, but they could defend themselves. One thing I'll mention about this before I move past it is verse 11 presents a bit of a quandary, doesn't it? Verse number 11 says... uh, By these letters, the king permitted the Jews who were in every city to gather together and protect their lives to destroy, kill, and annihilate all the forces of any people or province that would assault them, both little children and women, and to plunder their possessions. Were they authorized there to kill little children and women? I don't know. Uh, Or were they authorized to kill any who assaulted them or their women and children? It's one of those passages of Scripture that can be interpreted either way, and depending on which translation of the Bible you're holding, some of the uh, English translations take one of those, those approaches and some the other. I tend to think that, uh, that they were authorized uh, to protect themselves or protect their women and children if they were attacked. I don't think that they were being told here to attack women and children. So... Second thing that happened, the king promised or provided deliverance. Third thing is in verses 15 through 17, the people experienced joy. Joy. When informed of Haman's terrible decree, the people had been perplexed. Mordecai had torn his clothes. You remember that? Back in chapter 4, he had put on sackcloth and ashes. Every place the decree was known, there was great mourning among the Jews with fasting, weeping, and wailing, and many lay in sackcloth and ashes, chapter 4 and verse number 3. But now the effect was just the opposite. When the new decree was known, the city rejoiced, verse 15. The Jews especially rejoiced. They had light and gladness, joy and honor, verse 16. And everywhere the news was heard, there was joy, verse number 17. So the people experienced joy. And then finally, the last thing that I will mention that happened, 
Verse number 17, there was a ripple effect. Two more things happened as a result. One was that fear of the Jews fell upon the people, and many converted to Judaism. Many actually became Jews as a result of all this. So that's what happened, those four things. Let's talk for a minute now about what we can apply. And I'm going to suggest to you that it's the same four things. We can apply those same four things and think about those same four things. First of all, think about this. We, too, have been promised deliverance by the king or provided deliverance by the king. We, too, live under the threat of a terrible decree, do we not? And that decree is irrevocable. And that decree cannot be changed. It was mentioned way back in Genesis. The Lord God commanded the man, saying, Of every tree of the garden you may freely eat, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. Genesis chapter 2, verses 16 and 17. That law has never changed. That law never will change. The prophet Ezekiel warned the soul who sins shall die. Ezekiel chapter 18 and verse 4. Paul told the Romans the wages of sin is death. Haman's decree was if you are a Jew, you will die. God's decree is if you are a sinner, you will die. The Jews' situation seemed hopeless, for they were under sentence of death. That sentence couldn't be ignored or just simply wished away. Another decree was needed. And the king allowed or provided just such a thing, another decree, another law that would supersede and replace the first. And, of course, they took advantage of it. That second law gave them a way out. They had to fight back. If they hadn't fought back, they would have still faced death. Do you see the application? I see an application there. I think it's obvious. We, too, find ourselves under the death sentence of God's law. That law of sin and death that Paul describes in Romans chapter 5. All of us are sinners, for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and his word is not in us, John said in 1 John. And so as such, that terrible first decree is hanging over our heads. The soul that sins shall die. And for God to simply ignore that law would be neither legal nor just. The laws of God are irrevocable. And so God in his wisdom, God in his grace, God in his mercy, and because of his great love that he has for you and for me, he issued another decree that superseded that first decree. Jesus would come and Jesus would die in our place. But now the righteousness of God, apart from the law, is revealed, being witnessed by the law and the prophets, even the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ to all and on all who believe. For there is no difference. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, being justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God set forth as a propitiation by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness because in his forbearance God had passed over the sins that were previously committed to demonstrate at the present time his righteousness that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Romans chapter 8 verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. That law of of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus satisfied the law 
of sin and death. It made it possible for all who believe to escape the penalty and enjoy the freedom made possible by Jesus Christ. How do we not fall on our knees and sing glory? How do we not fall on our knees and say glory to the Son of God? But here's the kicker. Just as the Jews couldn't just sit passively and enjoy the benefits of that new law with no action required on their part, so too with us. They had to fight back or they would have died. And you have to repent of your sins and believe on the Lord Jesus Christ or you will still die. And go to hell. It's the same. God has made a way for you to escape that first decree. I have to ask, have you taken it? Have you taken it? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. As many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God. To those who believe on his name, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart... One believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation, for whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. Have you done that? You have to do that. Do you believe? Will you receive and be saved today? Well, that's one application. That's one application. Here's another one. We, too, can know the joy of believing. We can know the joy of believing. We've already seen that the city rejoiced and was glad in verse number 15, and that they rejoiced and were glad, and they had light and gladness and joy and honor, and they had joy and gladness and a feast and a holiday in verses 16 through 17. But did you notice something? I noticed this as I studied it. I never really thought about it before. Did you notice when this joy filled their hearts? It wasn't when they were delivered, because that has not happened yet. That hasn't happened and will not happen until chapter 9. It's all yet future. This joy came not from their being delivered, but simply from the promise that they would be delivered. And again, isn't the application to you and me obvious? We have not yet experienced full deliverance. We're not there yet. But we nonetheless know it's coming. And we therefore rejoice and can be glad. We're not, we're not there yet, but we nonetheless rejoice for our king has decreed that we will be soon. We too have light and happiness and gladness and joy and honor because we believe the promise of what awaits the saved. We are kept by the power of God through faith for salvation, ready to be revealed in the last time. And in this we greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, We've been grieved by various trials, that the genuineness of our faith, being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ, whom having not seen we love. Though now we do not see him, yet believing we rejoice with joy, inexpressible and full of glory, receiving the end of our faith, the salvation of our souls. I'm reminded of the time Jesus Christ got into a boat with his disciples. We talked about this when we were studying in Mark. In Mark chapter 4 and verse 35, Jesus got into the boat and he said, let us cross over to the other side. And then he laid down in the bow of the boat and fell asleep. And while he slept and while the disciples worked the boat, a tremendous storm arose that scared the willies out of them. These great, big, strong, tough fishermen thought they were dead men. They were never in any danger, of course. And Jesus demonstrated that by 
waking up and standing up and rebuking the wind and calming the sea. They were never in any danger because Jesus was in the boat. And because Jesus had already promised them they were going to the other side. I absolutely love that story. No matter what our circumstances may be, we who have believed in Jesus can rejoice in the knowledge. He's already promised the other side. We already know that we have won the victory. We may not be there yet, but the promise is sure. And in that, we can trust and rejoice. Paul told the Philippians, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And so we, too, can have joy in believing. Here's a third application. We, too, can cause, can be the cause of a ripple effect. I'm intrigued by verse 17. I don't know about you. Did you think about that? Look at that verse. Many people became Jews. I find that fascinating. Warren Wiersbe, in his book, Be Committed, and I've quoted from that several times in this, is there's not a whole lot of commentaries out there on Esther. And so I've, I've had to fall back on a couple that are uh, good ones, and his is one. He has a, a story that many of us may remember, and uh, I'll just read what he said. He said, after President Reagan was shot, when he was being prepared for surgery, he jokingly said to the medical team, I hope all of you are Republicans. Remember that? And one of the doctors replied, Mr. President, today, all of us. Are Republicans. Remember that? Wiersbe goes on to say that was the attitude of many of the people in the Persian Empire when Mordecai's edict was published today. All of us are Jews. Now, I don't know if that's right or not, but the fact is it says many of the people of the land became Jews. Now, why would that be? And there's a, there's a couple of reasons, I think, that are mentioned here. One of them uh, is mentioned plainly in verse number 17. It's stated plainly. Uh, it was because of the fear of the Jews. They feared the Jews, and, and therefore many became Jews. I mean, if we just think about that, that doesn't even really quite make sense to us, does it? And I, I think, I think it, it makes more sense if we think about what that word fear means. Uh, the word fear here can mean a couple of different things. It can mean being afraid. It can mean terror. It can mean trembling. It can mean all that. It can also mean awe. It can also mean respect. The same word is used to describe Isaac's relationship with God. Isaac referred to him as the fear of Isaac, or he was referred to as the fear of Isaac. It's true that most uses in the Bible of that word do describe terror, true fear, being afraid, trembling, And it's also true that such describes the reaction of a lot of people when they come into the presence of God's people or God himself. The disciples were greatly afraid when they saw Jesus still the storm. The residents of Gadara were afraid and asked Jesus to leave when they saw his miracles. So the word can mean terror, but it can also be translated awe respectful fear. And I tend to think that's what's occurring here, and it's the only way it makes sense to me. The people could not help but see something wonderful happening with the Jews, and they were in awe of it. It caused them to want to be a part of it. And many became Jews. But I think there's another reason, and it's not specifically mentioned here. I think it's implied rather than explicitly stated. 
We know that the Jews' delivery from Haman's genocide had not brought about this change of heart in the people for that delivery. Deliverance hadn't occurred yet. The thing that had changed, as we've already seen, was the promise of that delivery. Accompanied by a change in the attitude of the Jews, they were now rejoicing in hope. Now think about this. These people were now standing tall. These people were now standing proud. They were like the three Hebrew children who said, Our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning, fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O king. They were like David, who smiled at Goliath's sneers and said, All this assembly shall know that the Lord does not save with sword and spear, for the battle is the Lord's, and he will give you into our hands. They were like Elisha the prophet, who said to his trembling servant, Do not fear, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. They were like the Apostle John, who wrote, You are of God, little children, and have overcome them, because he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. You see, that kind of message attracts people. That kind of message draws people to the cross. It wins people. When we lift up Jesus Christ and proudly proclaim his truth, people are drawn to him. People become Christians. I once knew a dear, dear old saint named Irma. can't remember if I've ever told you about Irma before. Irma was poor. Irma was widowed. She was extremely old, and she was extremely sick. She was alone. And during the time that I knew her, she suffered one of the worst ravages of diabetes that uh, anybody suffers, and that she had to have her leg amputated. If there was any, anybody I've ever met that uh, maybe had an excuse to complain and mope and moan and walk around with her head low, her eyes down, downtrodden, filled with sorrow, it was Irma. But I've never been able to forget one event that happened with Irma. I visited her in the hospital right after she had had her leg amputated. I was a young pastor at the time. I, wouldn't have, I would have not have been any different now with the years of experience behind me that I had. I walked into her room praying, Lord, what in the world am I going to say to this woman? Please give me something that will help this poor woman. But when I walked into the room and she saw me, her face lit up with this beautiful smile. And the sheet on her bed started to quiver. This little hump started to rise under the sheet. And it was her leg, what was left of it. And she was flipping it around under there. And she said, hey, preacher, you want to meet Lefty? And she had this huge smile on her face. Irma lived joy. I have never seen her any other way, no matter what she went through. And we've probably all seen Christians like that, haven't we? Christians who smile through things that would make most people completely throw in the towel and take them completely out of the race. Christians who demonstrate with their lives that they believe, that they look forward to a future hope which gives them joy unspeakable and full of glory. And we've probably also seen the opposite, haven't we? People who call themselves Christians but never seem to smile at anything. Always down, defeated. Hang dog moping, complaining about every little thing that comes into their lives. Let us be like Irma. Let us be like these Jews who rejoiced and were glad, who had light and gladness and joy, not because they had been delivered already, but because they believed the promise that they would be delivered. That kind of message wins people, attracts people, draws people to the cross when we lift up Jesus. 
proudly proclaim his truth, people are drawn to him and people become Christians. One last application. We need broken hearts. Esther's heart was broken for her people. How can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? How can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? I mentioned this application last, even though it's out of order, even though it was mentioned first in the text, because it's important to note something. There would have been no second decree that promised deliverance to the Jews had Esther not first had a broken heart. There would have been no reason for joy, rejoicing, had Esther not first had a broken heart for her people. There would have been no mass conversion to Judaism, had Esther's heart not first been broken. We have to ask ourselves, I have to ask you, I have to ask myself, do we have such a broken heart for those who are dying? I confess my heart is... Far too often not broken like that. The cares of this life can get to all of us. Crowd in the enjoyment of the riches God has blessed us with in this country. Other things and other people fill our minds, fill my mind way too often. I don't think about the lost like I should. In Dickens, A Christmas Carol, the ghost of Christmas yet to come shows Scrooge a harrowing scene. He opens up the robe that he's wearing, and concealed under that robe are two gaunt, skinny, little emaciated, starving, seemingly near-death children. And he points out to Scrooge that these are some he could and should help, he should be concerned for. Scrooge was horrified, and he asked that they be covered up. He said, I do not wish to see them. Very well, said the ghost, but they live. Christians, we can ignore them, and we can look the other way. We can pretend they don't exist, but there are vast hordes plunging into hell every moment of our life, each second. How many did you pass this morning on your way to church? How many who were mowing their lawns or firing up their grills or polishing their golf clubs or pulling out of their driveways with their boats, oblivious to the danger that they are in? How many did you pass? According to the CIA, 55.3 million people die each year. That's 151,600 who die every day. That's 6,316 each hour. That's 105 each minute. That's nearly two every second. Took me about 15 seconds to read those statistics to you, during which about 30 people died. Jesus said, enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. There are few who find it. Can we not infer from Jesus' words there that the majority of those who are dying each minute are lost? That the majority of those 30 who died while I read those statistics went to hell? My average sermons are 35 minutes long. You might not believe that, but that's the absolute truth. I can prove that any time. 35 minutes long. 
during which time 3,675 souls will have gone into eternity. Hmm. Jesus said the majority of them, and if we just take 51%, that's 1,838, 1,838 of them will have gone to hell. Does that break your heart, Christian? Well, we're sitting here. Do you care? See, I, I have to confess. I have to confess that there are many days where I don't care as I should. And I would repent of that right now. May God give us the heart that Esther had here. I don't know, and we've talked a lot about this, I don't know if Esther's heart was broken because of religious concern or simply because of patriotic love of country and people. I don't know. But I want her heart. We should all want her heart. I want it for the lost. We have been promised deliverance by our king. We have every reason to rejoice based on that promised deliverance. That joyful faith draws others to Christ, and many will become Christians based on it. But, but, we must first have hearts that are broken, hearts that see the need, hearts that know that they must hear the words of life that only we can share. How can I endure to see the evil that will come to my people? How can I endure to see the destruction of my countrymen? Indeed, how can we? Well, Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful even when it convicts. Lord, I'm thankful for the way this has convicted me, and I pray, Father, for forgiveness when my heart has not been where it ought to be in this this matter. And I pray the same for all of us, Lord. This has been a message mostly for believers today, I think. And I pray if there are those here today who look into their heart of hearts and say, I've grown calloused. I don't have the heart that Esther had. I pray you'd give it back. I pray you'd revive us. I pray, Lord, you'd fire us up for the needs of the lost, that we would not be able to, uh, to get away from uh, the reality that we've, that we've thought through today, that people are dying and going to hell in hordes. Crowds around us while we go about our daily routine. Break our hearts for the loss, we pray. Help us, Father, to ask, as Esther did, how can we bear this? We need to tell them. We need to do what we can. And so, Lord, I pray you'd help us with that. And, Lord, if there are those here today who have never trusted Christ, I pray they'll think, too, about the things that we've seen here. I pray they'll think about the fact that there has been a way made that they can escape that law of sin and death. That if they are not yet believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, and if in their heart of hearts they know that if they were to die today, they'd go straight to hell. I pray, Father, they'd also know, absolutely, without a shadow of a doubt, that if they'll place their faith and trust in Jesus Christ this day, this moment, right here, right now, Lord, they can be saved forever. Forgiven, cleansed, made whole, part of the family of God. Please, Father, if there's even one, I pray they'd, they'd trust Christ today. It matters not if they've come to this church for 10 years and, and have just uh, sat on that truth and never responded to it, or if there's somebody who's visiting with us. It matters not. Whoever they are, Lord, help them to trust in you and do it today. Father, whatever the needs might be, uh, maybe some just need to come and pray. Maybe some need to talk to you about some other things that 
completely unrelated. I just pray, Father, that as we sing and close our service, if decisions need to be made, you'll help us to make them. May we respond to the word of God, not just hear it and let it go, but respond to it. And We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.